Kia ora, I'm Alex Ashton and this is The Detail. Today, preparing for an ageing population. When I was growing up, not so much you Alex, but uh, we used to nudge each other when we saw someone who was 90, always 90, because there were so few of them, now they're everywhere. It's no secret that our population is ageing and we're living longer and longer. In 2016, 15% of New Zealanders were over 65. By 2032, it'll be 22%. And by 2068, it's estimated up to a third of New Zealanders will be over 65. Which means stories like this... A sad new statistics emerged showing one in five elderly people in New Zealand suffer from chronic loneliness. This... New research predicts the number of hip and knee replacements in New Zealand will skyrocket over the next decade. And even this... The robot known as Paro introduced to Auckland's Selwyn Village today. Research suggests the cuddly creature helps lift spirits and encourages more interaction with others. ...are about to become a lot more common... The so-called tsunami of grey is generating a wave of political promises. All smiles as the government announces a boost for the super gold card. We're going to bring it up to date via super, super gold card. It includes a $7.7 million upgrade to the website and a new mobile phone app. And now there are calls for a champion of the elderly, an aged care commissioner. It wasn't a new idea, it wasn't my idea. Grey Power have been fighting for it for years. Labour... The Greens and Grey Power went on the road and said in the first, in fact, it was David um, David Clark said in the first Labour-led budget, we will have an aged care commissioner. This is a very vulnerable population. And if you think about it, the vulnerable populations in our society, we tend to have commissioners for, commissioner for the children. So there is a good argument to say that we should have one. Dr Nairi Kurse is a GP, a professor at the University of Auckland, and last year was appointed the Joyce Cook Chair in Ageing Well, a research position funded by private sector philanthropists. So an aged care commissioner, the jury's out for me. I think it needs a lot of discussion. will be an expensive thing. We'll need a support service and an office to support them, and they'll be looking at data, and uh, everyone will be responsible for reporting to a commissioner. You know, I, I think we just need to keep talking about it for a bit longer. The jury's out. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, because I would have thought that somebody who's who's done the type of research that you've done would have been in full support of something like this. Well, I do know how much things cost, and I'd almost more rather that money was given into the contracts to residential aged care, because the contracts are so tight to do anything proactive, to have more physiotherapy, to have more uh, rehabilitation type things happening, costs a lot of money. So that's where we should be focusing our funding, in my, in my view. When it comes to ageing populations, Nairi Curse is the local guru. Currently, just before... Um, the, um, 2020, we have 80, about 83,000 people over age 85. By the time we get to 2055 or 2060, there'll be 383,000 people age 85. Wow. Sorry, can you just repeat those numbers for me? So 83,000 <laughs> 83, now. now, 383,000 roughly. Wow. And so those are the estimates. So it's, you know, don't have to be a mathematician to see what a large change. It's a fourfold increase in those. 
the diversity of our ageing population goes up even more. If you look at the proportional increase in older Māori, in older Asian and older Pacific populations, it goes up by more than double that. And that's because that those populations are rapidly ageing, becoming successful. It's a really wonderful thing to celebrate, but actually do we know how to provide support and care for those populations and do we understand the, the uh, cultural contexts in which they operate? Curse co-led a major study into advanced ageing, the LILAC study. Which took a group of 400 older Māori, aged 80 to 90, and 500 older non-Māori from a population-based sample in the Bay of Plenty region. We found that 65% of 85-year-old non-Māori women were living alone. About 50-something percent of of Māori women at age 80 to 90 were living alone. And so, you know, is that we all, higher than you would have thought? I thought it would be much more intergenerational and much more living with people. So, living alone at age eighty-five, and now they're ninety. There's even higher proportions living alone. So, how they obviously are independent and managing their own stuff. Many of them are gardening and eating their own food and living very healthy lives. But actually muscle strength, aerobic capacity, combinations of of comorbidities and other uh, medical conditions mean that they tend to be much more fragile. But actually we need to develop lots of ways to support people to maintain their mobility in those advanced age times. Each of the seniors is randomly assigned to a group. One does exercise, one a cooking and nutrition class, one group does both, while the fourth group just meet each week for a cuppa. Is mobility the big concern or is it more the, the mental capacity side of things? You're thinking about dementia, I'm thinking cognitive about decline. everything, yeah. Well, I think that we can think about it in several different ways. Cognition is a big issue which we do need to think about. I lo- like to think about my grandmother who got dementia. She was the best scone maker in the district. And she couldn't make scones anymore. Complex things, complex tasks lining up, spatial stuff. She would get lost in the house. She would become confused in the afternoon. So it's a global thing with cognition and with the development of dementia. Dementia, of course, is the umbrella uh, term. You've got Alzheimer's disease, which is part of that. Multiple strokes is another part. And then um, less usual things like Lewy body disease and frontal lobe dementias and things. But that is go- they are going to be much more common in society because the number of older people is going to increase so much. The proportion of people in the older ages might be less with dementia, but the absolute numbers coming up will mean that people with dementia will be in our society and we need to celebrate them and look after them and include them. It's predicted 170,000 New Zealanders will have dementia by 2050, compared to fewer than 50,000 in 2011. So it makes sense to start getting ready for it now. But whose job is it? Of course you want your environment to be good, you want the pavements to be good, you want the city council and the transport people to give the older people time to cross the road when those lights go green or red. Um, And there's a lot of many different areas to think about. So yes, central government needs to do it, work with policies. Local government, I think, could have a much stronger role in making cities more age-friendly. Um, And then the health agencies need to be very much integrated with transport and housing to um, support older populations as we get more and more of them. Age-friendly is an interesting term you just used. And the interesting point you just raised about the lights 
things yep. like pedestrian lights, do we need to make those go a little bit longer so people can cross the road? Are we thinking about this stuff enough? So gate, considering... speed, gate speed is very interesting. You and I probably have a gate speed way over a metre a second. Once you gate, gate speed, speed is how fast, how fast you can walk. walk. Yeah. Right. And so if you walk less than 0.8 of a gate, a gate speed, you, there's not enough time to cross the road. And if it's a double-lane highway, it's even more problematic because you've got four lanes to cross. So I do think that everybody's aware of this. I'm not sure that we're actually adapting our cities and our cityscapes to be very age-friendly as yet. What about on a family level and, and within our own family? How can we mm-hmm. look after our own family members as they get older mm-hmm. and also, I guess, look after ourselves as well because that's going to be a big part of it, isn't it? Yes, look, there are, from the personal and family whānau area, there's lots of things that people can do. So the the key risk areas, I think, as we age as an individual, uh, balance and physical activity and cognition so things that you can do is constantly challenge those things. So take the stairs instead of the elevator. All the way through life, you can improve your chances of not having dementia by being more cognitively active. Being bilingual is a very good thing. Be a salsa dancer or a uh, ballroom dancer or some complicated long sequences of activities that are cognitively challenging and involve memory. Uh, that is quite good for you. I read a paper recently where they looked at a group, a population over a long period of time, and those who tended to go to museums uh, were a little bit more protected. So social networking and social connections, when you go to the museum, you might see things that might remind you about things. Reminiscing, keeping all the different parts of your brain active uh, is, a, is a very good thing. Do we need a, a, a minister of loneliness? Because it's loneliness that's that's probably the biggest problem, isn't it? Well, it is. And again, there are other countries. So the UK have recently put in a minister of loneliness. And certainly from my perspective, what we see at Age Concern Canterbury is loneliness is the biggest issue facing older people. Does today. loneliness kill people? It absolutely does. How important is remaining connected? Because loneliness is yep. has become a bit of a buzzword, I guess, when it, it comes to an ageing population. Yeah. But how crucial is maintaining some kind of social so connection? So the, there was a bunch of research in the, in the 80s and 90s which showed quite clearly that social connections and social networking and social amount of social activity was as protective against mortality and dementia development as physical activity and um, remaining well. And then the research kind of changed a bit, and I think it's because our health funding mechanisms don't include social funding because social is under a different uh, different tree, if you like. But I, my research and the qualitative research that I know about and some quantitative research show that actually being connected, maintaining connections with your family and also with your community are really important to well-being and to staying healthy. Now, how you do that is the big question. Because what tends to happen in New Zealand society is families don't live in the same place. If you go to other societies like Germany, they're very likely to be living in family groups in their villages um, for generation after generation. But New Zealand is very mobile. Technology can help a lot. Like I know a lot of people who regularly Skype and keep up with the grandchildren, uh, you know, by over those airwaves. Mm -hmm. Actually travelling to visit is also much more common um, so we'd, I think we need to be quite innovative in c- maintaining those connections. 
Is all connectivity created equal? Because I'm thinking about social media. They're going to be able to stay connected easily, surely. Just nip online. You can talk to whoever you like. <laughs> I, I think that's a very, very interesting question, and the jury's out. I'd love to do some focused study on that because when you go to a place and sit down with people and interact and talk and do things together, there's a whole lot of different parts of your senses that are stimulated when you're online, it's really only one or two senses with your vision and with your thinking and potentially verbally as well, but not necessarily. So I think social activity acts in many, many different ways. And online activity is different than impersonal activity where you're seeing and, and, uh, and interacting. Something about emotional recognition is very important with cognition. You lose early, you lose the ability to recognise emotions and sometimes recognise who people are. So do you get the same emotional connection online? What do you think? Personally, I'm, I mean, instant Personally. gut reaction would say probably no. Yeah. Because I think you can read a message in a hundred different ways, right? But yep, you can exactly. only read when somebody says something to you in a set of ways because you've got tone. <laughs> yeah, you've got tone, you've got all of that stuff. Yeah. And because the number of older persons is growing, the amount of elder abuse can be expected to grow with it. And the UN says that elder abuse remains one of the least investigated types of violence in national surveys and one of the least addressed. Most of the elder abuse is financial, and of course you can see how that would be easy. That's people ripping older people off. Uh, for, on pension day, family members can do that, and also neighbours and other people around the place. Elder abuse also happens when there's increased stress and pressure within the family. So yes, everybody wants to look after Gran and do the right thing, but Gran can be quite frustrating. And so you need to be able to have a time out, you need to be able to be supported, you need to be not the only carer for that person. So I think thinking about keeping carers pleasant and, and enjoyable as possible is really important going forward and reaching out for help when things aren't going well. For elder abuses out there, um, and it's a it's a tragedy that doesn't need to happen. Juliet Moses is a lawyer with TGT Legal, specialising in trusts and estate planning. The main issue is whether people have capacity, which means the, the legal power, if you like, to do certain things at, at law. So. That might be uh, whether they've got the capacity to sell their house. Uh, it might be whether they've got the capacity more generally just to, to manage their affairs and make decisions about themselves. Um, it might be finding a new will. It's a range of things. So that is the main issue. Is there a legal definition for capacity? The, the difficulty is that there isn't really one prevailing test for capacity or definition of capacity at law in New Zealand, uh, the position is the capacity that you need to have can't be considered independently of the thing that you're exercising the capacity for. So, for example, if you are selling your house, uh, you would need less capacity, if you like, than uh, if you are selling a $100 million business. So there's a, a, a continuum of capacity, and where you fall on it for one thing might be sufficient, but not sufficient for something else at law. And who decides if someone is capable of making those decisions, be it a house well, or a $100 million business? Yeah. 
ultimately, if it was called into question, it, it would be a court, actually, uh, would have to consider whether that was a, a valid decision that had been made. Because if somebody doesn't have capacity, then it won't be a, a valid decision. But before that, there's, there's many things that can happen. So, for example, if your family is a bit concerned about you and thinks that you're showing signs of dementia, then the first thing ideally that they would do would be to get you assessed by your GP or possibly even by a medical specialist such as a psychogeriatrician and find out whether you did have the capacity to do that particular thing, whatever it was, the sale of the house, for example. And then if, for example, the, the medical practitioner decided that uh, the person did not have capacity for whatever the, the thing was that that person wanted to do, then it might be then that if that person had put in place powers of attorney, those powers of attorney would kick into effect and then the attorney would have power on behalf of that person to do whatever the thing was. Let's say the person's family says, okay, yep, let's get them tested. But what happens if mm-hmm. the person doesn't want to be tested? They say, no, I'm well, fully capable. Yeah, that's a very good question, and that is actually becoming quite an issue. And there is actually no easy answer to that. And and, and you can understand, uh, firstly, that there are a lot of people who are resistant to this idea um, of of being tested, because, of course, we're talking about potentially a loss of autonomy here. Really, there's very little that you can do. Um, If somebody refuses to be tested, then I guess they would enter into the contract or do whatever the, the legal thing is that they want to be doing and take the risk that it actually might be challenged further down the track. It's a big deal, isn't it, when you're sacrificing your entire autonomy, really, and any uh, financial power you have. Do we find that elderly people have a lot of pressure put on them? There is quite a bit of pressure put on them. We have to know enough to be able to look out for the signs and question, you know, there are some red flags. Does this person have capacity or not? We're not medical experts, obviously, but we have to know enough to know when somebody should be medically assessed, for example. But you're right, on the other hand, there can be, especially in in fraught family situations, uh, issues where, for example, somebody does actually quite possibly have capacity, but somebody else is saying they don't have capacity because they want to take advantage of that person, they want to take over power for that person um, and possibly abuse that power. And there has certainly been many cases, for example, in New Zealand of attorneys abusing the power that they have, taking advantage of them and using their powers in ways that they shouldn't because those powers are obviously there to to benefit the person who's given them the power, not, not for that person to then benefit themselves. My son made me sign my house over to him. I was told I was a burden and a waste of space. She increased my dose so I was easier to look after. These are stories of elder abuse in New Zealand. Others are subtle or deceptive, meaning victims may not even realise they're being abused. A big red flag is if you have an elderly person who is brought in by an adult child who insists on sitting in the meeting and giving all the instructions and 
the elderly person just nods along a bit or, or whatever. So you have to, in, in that situation, we would absolutely ask for the, the child to not sit in on the meeting or on a meeting anyway and ensure that the elderly person is exercising free will and uh, does understand what he or she is doing and you know, we, we would just need to feel um, confident that that is the case. And if it's not, we would quite possibly um, send that elderly person off for assessment or encourage him or her to get assessment. What can I as an individual do to protect myself mm-hmm. heading into my later years? Um, and also, what can I do to protect my, my family? Good question. The best thing you can do is go and see a lawyer. <laughs> I'm of course going to say that as a lawyer, <laughs> but, but it is really what you should be doing and making a will. And I would also say um, doing powers of attorney and, uh, you know, any suburban lawyer should be able to help you do that. Nairi Kirst to finish. New Zealand is an ageist society. We do not value and we do not promote images of older people that we don't uh, we strive to be young and beautiful and skinny, and we don't strive to be gracious in, in, in age. And I think we just have to change. So uh, if you think about the isms, racism is against another race. A- sexism is against another sex. You're never going to turn into that other. Ageism is problematic because we all age. And so if you grow up in an ageist society and don't value being older, what happens when suddenly you look in the mirror at age 70 and you think, oh, I'm ageing? Does, what is the psychological fallout of that? And we are seeing that more. You know, there's more plastic surgery in 17, 80-year-olds than there ever was before. Um, so, I'd like us to change and actually value and promote ageing and images of older people, and uh, then we can all age more graciously and enjoy it. That's the detail for today. I'm Alex Ashton. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz, made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Mark Jennings. Our associate producer is Kathaki Masalamani. Mate wa.